0: Hey, once again, welcome to the show.
1: It is a Tuesday, and that means uh, I'm going to catch up with my friend and fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today?
2: Well, I'm good. I'm not in jail yet for refusing to don the diaper. How about yourself?
1: You know, we just had a mask mandate imposed on us in the county where I live, and uh, there's a lot of defiance, but there's also a lot of people who are going along with it. It's, It's an interesting time, to put it mildly.
2: Yeah, without question. It's the same here. We have had, this isn't exactly in my area, but I live not far from Blacksburg, which is the home of Virginia Tech. And when Tech uh, opened up and the students came back, and that's about 40,000 people, by the way, uh, they got uh, hyper-diapery. And now apparently they have passed some local Heights edict that you must wear the diaper when out on public sidewalks and so on. Um, I don't think there's been any law passed, certainly not by the state legislature. I think it's just these local people trying to pressure People into believing that there is some kind of a diaper law on the books. And that's, I think, to a great extent why people are complying, because they actually have begun to believe that there's some kind of law that you have to wear a face diaper, and there isn't.
1: Well, I'm sure you've seen the video footage out of, was it Ohio, where the mom watching her son's football game yes. was accosted and arrested. Yes. For, and it, and it started, they say, well, now, technically she was arrested for criminal trespass, but look, mm-hmm. the, the reason that uh, Officer Friendly waddled into her life was because she wasn't wearing a mask.
2: Sure, and the most disappointing thing about that uh, was, if you watched it, there were a number of people who were in the general vicinity who could have stood up and taken off their masks and said, are you going to arrest me too? Right, right. That I- would have been a nice, not violent way to put the onus on the armed government worker, um, whether to continue to behaving like a thug or not.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that woman is about to become... Um, much, much uh, wealthier. Unfortunately, it's going to be on the taxpayers' backs. But um, yeah, what what a what a debacle! And, and the fact that people just mm-hmm. sat and watched. Well, nothing we mm-hmm. can do. That's that's the saddest. I guess that's the saddest commentary of all.
2: Well, sure, it's this this passivity, and we've seen it for twenty years now. I I used to grind my teeth when I would have to fly for work and and stand in line uh, for the TSA grop,e and I always went for the grop,e because I wasn't going to go through that machine. And I would watch parents with young children and the young children being groped. I would watch uh, elderly people being made to you know, get out of their, their wheelchair and submit to this degradation. And nobody said or did anything. And, and that's part of the reason why this stuff is happening.
1: Yeah, pretty shameful stuff. Now, there is some good news. So I, I don't want anybody to think, well, mm-hmm.
2: you guys are just getting
1: together yeah. and commiserating on all the bad things. Mm-hmm. Here's the good thing that's happening in my home state of Utah, and that is the legislature is putting forth a resolution. They're just trying to get enough senators and enough of the state representatives at this mm-hmm. point to make this stick. But it would rescind the state of emergency that our governor yep. has twice extended, which is in violation of of state law it's not supposed to be more than 30 days without the right. legislature itself having a special session and deciding whether or not to extend it so the governor is about to get his wings clipped and it couldn't come a moment too soon
2: no and it's also happening in other parts of the country it's happening happened in Pennsylvania it's underway in Ohio and i believe in a number of other states as well as people begin to tire of this rigmarole um so yeah it's very important to to focus on the positives Uh, as well as on the the negatives, uh, equally important. Um, But we have to keep uh, our chin up and not be defeated by this. I think part of the reason why so many people have just sort of resigned themselves to the diapering is it's this defeatist attitude that we just have to do this. And no, we don't. There are ways that we can fight back, and by fighting back, we end this. That's the important point to take home, I think.
1: There was a great commentary by Mike Whitman, I believe is his name. Um, he had 10 reasons why he won't wear the face mask. Reason yep. number six was the one I thought, this sounds like the one that, that motivates me, and that is because it is easier to practice resisting small incidences of tyranny for a time where there may be bigger instances of tyranny that need to be resisted. And I think this is one of those times.
2: Amen. I've been harping for months on the uh, the argument that, by acceding to the diapering, you've acceded to the needling. You know, uh, it's it's these people who think, oh, it's just a trivial matter to put this mask on. Uh, for the moment, I have to walk through the door, and then I can take it off. It's not trivial. It is very important to take a stand on this, because if you put the thing on, you have lent credence to this idea that there really is this lethal pandemic going around that can kill anybody, and that we're all potentially sick. And implicit in that is that the only way to solve that problem is for everybody to line up for their Bill Gates vaccine, which, by the way, read the other day that the FDA threshold now for this thing is 50% effectiveness. How do you like that?
1: Well, that's hardly an ironclad guarantee now, is it?
2: No, and of course, it means that 50% on the other side could be uh, horrible side effects uh, in addition to no good effect at all.
1: Now, you were telling me, though, before we went on the air, that uh, um, a very high-profile individual in the the person Mm -hmm. of Elon Musk... Has said, "Yeah, I'm not going to be doing that vaccine, and neither of my kids."
2: That's right. You know, I'd like to like Elon. There's there's a lot about him that uh, I think is admirable. I think he did uh, a very innovative and interesting thing with uh, facilitating digital payment through PayPal. That's how he initially made his fortune. Uh, he's a, he, in some ways he has some libertarian qualities. Of course, I butt horns with him over this idea of uh, building electric cars at taxpayer expense and and under the rubric of of federal and state mandates. Uh, That said, today or the other day, he came out and said he would not subject himself or his family, including his children, to this vaccine because they're not at risk, which is the case for almost the entire population. Um, Paul Craig Roberts had a column out today that reiterated what the WHO and the CDC have conceded Uh, which is that only 9,000 of the reported 200,000 deaths were people who did not have multiple comorbidities, who didn't fall into these very high-risk categories of the very elderly and the already very sick, meaning that those of us who are not very elderly and very sick have nothing to worry about from this virus.
1: Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. But Eric, how could we possibly know that without some expert like Dr. Fauci to tell us whether or not we're at risk?
2: Well again that you can't disprove that and that's the that's the danger here how do you disprove that a man isn't a rapist you know you can assert that any man is potentially a rapist because most men are physically capable of committing rape do we do we regard all men as actual rapists because of the possibility that a man a given man a construct could potentially commit rape i think that that's absolutely outrageous i think you have to demonstrate that a specific individual has caused or is about to cause a specific harm before you can uh, levy impositions on that person.
1: No I, I would of course agree and most importantly, um, I agree with I think it was FA Hayek who talks about how you know the the experts, no matter how uh, how lofty their title, no matter how how informed they may think they are, still don't know enough to make the kinds of decisions that you and I can make as individuals as to what's best for us.
2: Well, and not to mention, these so-called experts are often, in fact, lately almost universally wrong. These same people who are lecturing us now about what we should be doing now were lecturing us about different things that we should be doing six months ago, including not wearing the diaper, if you can remember that, uh, and also that two or three million people were going to die from this thing. They've been proven not just wrong, but grossly wrong. So as far as I'm concerned, their credibility is shot, and it amazes me that anybody listens to them at all anymore.
1: Well, and I'm particularly wary of experts who draw a government paycheck and who, you know, have been shielded from some of the indignities that the rest of us have been, being told we're not essential, your business can't be open, you can't go to work. You know, the guys who aren't missing a yeah. paycheck and the guys who's, whose pay is extracted at the end of a gun from the rest of us, the taxpayers, they, uh, they might just have a vested interest in, in keeping things the way they are, you know, for, for their own job security.
2: Well, without question, speaking of vested interests, it's also appalling to me that the financial interests, both in terms of reporting the cases of corona and in pushing this vaccine into people, uh, are hardly talked about at all in the general press. Uh, Every hospital that reports a COVID case gets a check, and you'd think that immediately that would call into question whether – these, these hospitals and these doctors are perhaps being a little bit sloppy in how they assign whether a person died from corona or some other thing. And you'd also think that there would be questions and red flags raised about the fact that the, the makers of these vaccines stand to make billions and billions of dollars if they can get the government to force people to buy their product.
1: Yep. Yep. I think uh, our suspicions are well placed. I just wish more people would be suspicious, and I, I don't know how you how you can you know create that uh, that attitude of you know we should be paying a little closer attention.
2: Well, that the problem is we live in an irrational age. Um, I, I wrote another one of my diaper reports the other day uh, to that effect about how the attitude of people, not all people, but a lot of people, is becoming kind of medieval. Uh, when people were driven by fear of things like wizards and ill humors and witches that wafted through the dark forests, this, this, this primitive mindset that makes everybody suspicious of everybody else. Um, It's quite alarming. You know, the, 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 the bequest of the enlightenment, the idea of reason and of rationality, of facts, of logic, all of those things have been under consistent attack now for 50 plus years. And these are the fruits that we're reaping.
1: Okay. Hold that thought. We'll be back. Eric Peters is my guest back after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I've got uh, Eric Peters from EP Autos with me today. And uh, Eric, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about... I'm a Rush fan. I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of Rush. And particularly, I love the song Red Barchetta. And uh, you have a a recent column that alludes to this song and the fact that uh, part of that song seems to be playing out in real life in California. What can you tell us about that?
2: Well, about 40 years ago in 1981, Rush wrote a song about a dystopian future time in which cars were outlawed. And uh, the hero of the song is a guy who goes out to his uncle's country place where his uncle has hidden away Uh, an old car, and he goes out on a joyride in defiance of all the the motor laws that say you can't do that. Well, California has just effectively passed exactly that, a motor law, that beginning in 2035, nothing but zero emissions, so-called, I always put that in air quotes, electric cars will be allowed for sale in that market. And I think implicit in that, too, is that there will be an attack on the remaining fleet of existing non-electric cars, as by for example, onerous taxes uh, on the registration of non-electric cars, which they do in China. In China, you can drive a non-electric car, provided you pay the Chinese government 14000 bucks for a special license plate that lets you do it.
1: Nice. Nice. So, so as long as you're connected, you, uh, you still have a lot of options. Now, what about the, uh, the rest of the proletariats?
2: Well, that's the real issue here. This is an assault directed at uh, you and I and other ordinary people. Um, This is an economic as well as a regulatory assault. Electric cars are prohibitively expensive. The least expensive one on the market right now is the Nissan Leaf, and it's heavily subsidized. And even so, it still costs $30,000, which, for frame of reference, is roughly twice the cost of a current non-electric economy car. So most people aren't going to buy that, right, as long as you've got the option to not buy it. So they know that. So what they've reasoned out is that the way to get people into electric cars is to force them to buy an electric car. And then the next step is people will realize they can't afford the electric car, at which point they'll realize they can't afford to drive anymore. Of course, for people like Governor Newsom, who's a multimillionaire, uh, that's not a problem. For him, $40,000 is the equivalent of you or I finding 25 cents under the sofa cushion.
1: Wow. I I have to, to ask, though, who benefits from this other than the political class, you know, um, fossil fuels are, are still very much what drives our economy. I can't see mm-hmm. this uh, being something that is is going to be, a, you know, a simple, easy transition and suddenly everything is green.
2: Well, the premise here is that economic growth is desirable. And uh, I think by now it should be obvious to any intelligent person that in- economic growth is not desirable because it empowers the average person. If the average person has a job that pays decently, if the average person can afford to live in his own house and has food on the table, can feed his kids, and has a car that he can own and drive whenever he pleases, wherever he pleases, he doesn't really need the government, does he? No. What the government wants is uh, a mass of helpless, dependent, living in perpetual fear, proles, who are desperate for whatever gruel the government hands out. So the object here is political power, not economic power.
1: Well, it seems like that would be a pretty good way to go about it, especially since it's hitting people where they live, and that is their mobility, their autonomy.
2: And they're trying to do it this time also, as they are with this Wu-Flu stuff and the face-typing, by shaming people, by making people believe that if you don't drive an electric car, you're contributing to the despoliation of the planet by by climate change. Uh, And a lot of people who are not very conversant with the issues and the facts as regards that buy into that, just like they buy into wearing a dirty old bandana over their face, which they've been led to believe is somehow going to stop a virus from, from, from spreading to them uh, or to somebody else.
1: Well, I have to thank you for being uh, one of the guiding forces that helped me see that what, uh, what we call, you know, these automotive emissions, you know, the ones that are mm-hmm. supposedly polluting the planet, darkening the skies, and, mm-hmm. and, and turning our life into a living hell— um, based on the the way that technology has has evolved, the way that that uh, cars burn, you know, their fuel, mm-hmm. it's it's such a far cry from where it was. Um, that uh, what what we look at as as air pollution is is hardly comparable to what it would have been from well, automobile automobile emissions back in say the fifties or sixties.
2: You can divine the truth of this by just looking at the verbiage that's used. And again, there is a parallel with what's going on with the flu, with the woo flu, the way they shifted the verbiage um, from the body count to the cases, the cases, uh, which they had to do because the, the rationale that was based on the body count wasn't, wasn't working for them anymore, and it was too obvious to see through it with regard to cars, they had to change the definition of pollution because pollution, properly understood, meaning uh, the, the byproducts of incomplete or inefficient combustion that contribute to smog, breathing problems, and so on, they've been under control since the 90s, so almost 30 years. Uh, almost all that comes out of the exhaust of a combustion engine vehicle is water vapor and carbon dioxide. The other, uh, the other pollutants are effectively nil. So they're no longer an issue. So that's why they had to change the terms of the debate. And now you hear about carbon dioxide being talked about as an emission, and that's not by accident.
1: Let's shift gears here for a second and talk about uh, General Motors. I know you had a piece that just Mm -hmm. hit this morning um, about uh, GM and and virtue signaling. Tell us about that. Yeah,
2: they seem, well, car companies, it's not just GM, but GM is really one of the ones that leads the way. They seem preoccupied with everything except building cars these days. Uh, They seem preoccupied with racial and ethnic and sexual bean counting to make absolutely sure that they have a proportionate number of people in their employ of each particular category, except of course the one category. When they speak of people of color, they're of course leaving out one color, and we need not necessarily mention which one that is because it's pretty obvious. And the, the long and short result of all of this is that General Motors has gone from being the dominant car maker in the world. In the, in the United States, in 1970, General Motors had 50% plus of the entire market. Uh, today, it has 17%, which is less than Chevrolet Division had all by itself back in 1970.
1: Wow. So I guess all that virtue signaling must be really paying off, huh? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Well, what happens when, the, when your business, if you're in the car business, is no longer predominantly about finding the best engineers but worrying about whether the engineer is white, black, brown, red, gray, whatever the color happens to be, whether it's male or female or it doesn't know whether it's male or female, when you're obsessed about that sort of stuff, it's really hard to get things done, isn't it?
1: Oh, Absolutely. But does the quality of the product suffer in the meantime? I mean, I have heard of instances where affirmative action, you know, because it's so focused on these these outward group identity features, will sacrifice, you know, competency in in that quest to please, you know, the politically correct.
2: Well, yeah, you know, you can look at it not necessarily so much in terms of shoddy workmanship, just mismatched uh, vehicles for the market. General Motors under Mary Barra, the current CEO, has managed to screw up so many things it's hard to enumerate. But one of the biggest ones that they've screwed up is their 1,500 trucks, the half-ton trucks, which always ran a close second to Ford, which is the the number one best-selling truck brand in the country. They lost that to Ram. The Ram 1,500 is now the second best-selling half-ton truck in the market. Uh, And and part of the reason for that is that the current Chevy 1,500 is hideously ugly, and uh, it comes with all of the safety stuff, and it comes with a four-cylinder engine in some models. And people who buy trucks aren't interested in that. They want a truck that's brawny and manly and gets the job done. They're not really worried about uh, signaling virtue.
1: I got one final question. We've got just about a minute or so left. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course, the presidential debate is taking place yeah. tonight. Uh, what do, What do you think? Is Joe Biden going to show, or is he going to be a no-show for this debate?
2: Well, I think he has to show. If 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 the hair plug man does not show up to debate the orange orange man, uh, I think that would be absolutely catastrophic. The question is how he will perform, and how the orange male man will perform. I think the orange man is the odds-on favorite going in. Uh, whether you like him or hate him, he is very effective in that milieu. Um, Biden uh, also is effective, or at least he has been in the past. The question is whether his mental competence is such that he can still be effective versus the orange man. I'm certainly going to be, be tuned in.
1: Okay. I, I'm not going to be able to watch the debate itself, but I've got a couple of friends on Twitter who will be doing a running commentary and, and because they're, they're not only well-informed, but they're also a couple Mm -hmm. of wags. I think that uh, that should, that should be quite entertaining.
2: Eric, thanks for joining me today. We'll get to the postscript next week. Okay. We'll
1: follow up. Eric Peters from epautos.com. We'll look forward to talking next Tuesday. Thank you,
2: Brian.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm still trying to figure out,
1: I mean, look, you know, there was, there was talk years ago, why won't President Trump, or, I'm sorry, why won't Donald Trump, then he wasn't president. Uh, Release his tax returns, because I'm sure they were looking for some kind of ties to Russia. I'm guessing, right? Because remember, wasn't he supposed to be a Russian puppet? And uh, this would this would prove once and for all, like the last uh, four years of investigations were supposed to prove that uh, that Trump was really just you know a Russian operative. So apparently, the New York Times gets its hands on uh, Trump's uh, tax returns for 2016, 2017. And they find he only paid about $750 in taxes. And they're not happy about that. They're, they're like, well, can, can you believe he only paid $750 in, some, you know, in, in these specific years? Maybe I should be bothered by that. But at the risk of sounding unpatriotic, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody should pay one single dime more than they absolutely have to. And for those who are like, yeah, but he used loopholes in the tax laws. Why do you think those loopholes are there? Congress put those there for a reason. Now, it may be because they want their wealthy cronies to be able to have, you know, an out when it comes to taxes. But the bottom line is, the the loopholes are there. And frankly, I'm just, I have a hard time being upset that someone didn't get fleeced as hard as, as certain busybodies think that they should be fleeced. So if you told me, you know, you only paid a certain amount of taxes and it was, you know, a very low number relative to your income, my response would be, good for you. Good. You didn't, uh, you didn't have to hand over more of your hard-earned money to society's enemy, which, by the way, is a great uh, t- title of a piece by Kent McManagle. Trump's $750 payment to society's enemy. He says, am I bothered that Trump only paid $750 in taxes in some specific years? That's like asking if I'm bothered that some billionaire only donated $750 to ISIS, Antifa, or the KKK. Or like asking whether I'm bothered that someone only gave a mugger $750 rather than the millions the mugger would have preferred. He says, I'm more bothered that the bad guys got any money from him. I'd rather he paid, in quotation marks, them nothing. And he says what, what the rest of us seem to have forgotten. Taxation is theft. And theft is wrong, no matter who it victimizes. I don't want Kamala Harris to pay any taxes. I don't even want Hillary Clinton to pay any taxes. Money kept out of the hands of the state society's enemy is always better than money going to the state, even if it's in the hands of someone who I can't stand, who I believe will use it for evil. Because he says, I know the state will use it to violate life, liberty, and property. That's just a given because that's what it's always done and what it always does. So Kent McManagle says, I'm glad for anyone keeping their money from the state. And I think he zeroes in on this is the part that I just, <clears throat> I don't quite get. Why can't you be happy for somebody who is avoiding at least a degree of their enslavement? But no, we're, we're the, the stereotypical crabs in a bucket. We well, got to pull them down. There's going to be misery. All of us should be as miserable as one another. What a silly way to live. By the way, I will be watching the, uh, I won't be watching the presidential debate tonight. I am quite interested, mainly because, uh, well, if I were a betting person, I'd have some money writing that Joe Biden would be a no-show. I can't imagine how his handlers are going to have him prepared, you know, short of uh, creating a marionette of him and, and someone you know, speaking for him. But it could be interesting. So instead of watching the debate itself, I will be following James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies on uh, Twitter just to uh, see what their running commentary is. Now, there's a reason for this, too. They are funny guys. They have a sense of humor. And they're also very knowledgeable about uh, things economic and things political. So there's, there's some, a couple of pretty seasoned truth detectors that will be at work as well. So if you're, if you're not into sitting down to watch the debate in all of its pomp and circumstance, but you need a laugh... Maybe do like me and follow James R. Harrigan. I've got a link to his Twitter page on the, the show notes. You can access them at thebryanhideshow.com. I have something I want to share with you that uh, I, I found in the Wayback Machine. It's an article, actually it's a commentary from Jeff Snyder written back in October of 2004. Way back when, you know, it was it was a while back. It's called Walter Mitty's Second Amendment. And I want to share this with you because I think this may be one of the better illustrations of how we convince ourselves that we are free when in fact there's a ton of evidence that would show otherwise. And my goal here is not to make you feel bad or feel like you are, you know, somehow stupid because you don't recognize this. Look, we all tell ourselves... You know, what we need to, to kind of keep peace of mind. But once in a while, somebody has to point out the elephant in the room. And Jeff Snyder does a brilliant job in this essay. He says, once upon a time, there was a people who inhabited a majestic land under an all-powerful government. Now, this government had the resources to control practically every aspect of human existence. Hundreds of thousands of public servants, in quotation marks, could access the most personal details of every citizen's life because everyone was issued a number at birth with which the government would track him throughout his life. No one could even work in gainful employment without this number. True, the government left certain domains of individual action largely free, particularly matters concerning speech and sex. These activities posed no real threat to the state, When not used to entertain and divert, the power of speech was used principally to clamor for more or better goods from the state or for reforms to make the state work better, thereby entrenching the people's dependency. And insofar as sex was concerned, well, the people's behavior in this area also really had no effect on the scope of state power. In fact, the rulers noted that people's preoccupation with matters of sexual morality, whether premarital, teenage pregnancy, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, or general who-zooming-who, diverted the people's attention from the fact that they were, for economic and all other intents and purposes, slaves. Slaves, though, who labored under the illusion that they were free. The people were a simple lot, politically speaking, and readily mistook the ability to give free rein to their appetites as the essence of personal freedom. Jeff Snyder writes, In that fruitful land, the state took about 50% of everything the people earned through numerous forms of taxation, up from about 25% just a generation earlier. However, this boastful people who believed themselves to be the freest on earth retained the right to keep and bear arms. Tens of millions of them possessed firearms, just in case their government became tyrannical and enslaved them. In that land, an astronomical number of regulations filling more than 96,000 pages in the government's code of regulations were promulgated by persons who were not elected by the people. The regulators often developed close relationships with the businesses they regulated and work in agencies that had the power both to make the law and to enforce it. The agencies that were not established by the government's were, were not established rather by the government's constitution, yet their existence violated that instrument's principle of separation of powers. And the people retained the right to keep and bear arms just in case their government someday ceased to be a government of the people. In that land, the government contemplated that the people would be governed by two separate levels of government national and and local. Matters that concerned the people most intimately, health, education, welfare, crime, and the environment, were to be left almost exclusively to the local level, so that those who made and enforced the laws lived close to the people who were subject to the laws, and felt their effects. So that different people who had different ideas about such things would not be subject to a one-size-fits-all standard that would apply if the national government dealt with such matters. Competition among different localities for people who could move freely from one place to the other would act as a reality check on the passage of unnecessary or unwise laws. But in a time of great crisis, called the Great Economic Downturn, the people and their leaders clamored for national solutions to national problems. And the Constitution was interpreted by the majestic court to permit the national government to pass laws regulating practically everything that had been reserved for the localities. Okay, at this point, I've got to break away because we've got to take a very quick break. We'll come back in a moment to Jeff Snyder's essay from 2004, Walter Mitty's Second Amendment. This thing may have been written nearly 16 years ago, but man, does he zero in on some things that uh, I think most of us would rather not acknowledge, especially to the degree that we're being shown we're not as free as we like to believe we are. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All
1: right, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Jeff Staples Realty. I would encourage my friends, uh, within the sound of my voice, who live in Utah, if you are in the market for a home or you're wanting to sell a home, you contact my friend Jeff Staples. He is with ERA Brokers Consolidated. He is experienced, and he is a very, very sought-after real estate agent, and again, he has people throughout the state of Utah. So if you are if you are within the sound of my voice, you live in Utah, and you are in the market, and boy, is it a hot market right now, Jeff Staples Real Estate, that's the guy you want to talk to. You can find his contact information in my show notes. Go to the com. the show notes for uh, September 29th, right there at the bottom of the page. There's a link that'll take you where you can get Jeff's number and reach out to him. So I'm sharing this article by Jeff Snyder. It's an essay called Walter Mitty's Second Amendment. And I have to admit, this one stings. This is is kind of a slap across the face because it's pointing out something that I think many of us have labored under for a long time. And that is we tell ourselves we're free. Play me some Toby Keith music. Play me Lee Greenwood because I know I'm free. But Jeff is making a very strong case that yeah, we have the illusion of freedom, even with the right to keep and bear arms, but our government does not behave like a truly limited government. And he talks about how the uh, the majestic court of this, this fictional land permitted the national government to pass laws that regulated almost everything reserved that had previously been reserved for the localities. And that meant that uh, the people had the pleasure of being governed by not just one, but now two, beneficent governments with two sets of laws regulating the same things. So you had the local level, you had the national level. But now the people could be prosecuted, not by one, but two governments, for the same activities and conducts. Still, he says, this fiercely independent people retained the right to keep and bear arms just in case their government someday no longer secured the blessings of liberty to themselves or their posterity. Now he says in that fair land, property owners could be held liable under the nation's environmental legislation for the cleanup costs associated with toxic chemicals, even if the owners hadn't caused the problem. Another set of laws provided for asset forfeiture and permitted government agencies to confiscate property without first establishing guilt. Yet the people retained the right to keep and bear arms just in case their government denied them due process by holding them liable for things that were not their fault. The Majestic Court had long ago determined that due process did not prevent government from imposing liability on people who were not at fault. Due process, it turned out, meant little more than that a law had been passed in accordance with established procedures. You know, it was actually voted on, passed by a majority, and signed by the president. If it met those standards, it didn't matter much what the law actually did. Oh well, he says, the people had little real cause to worry after all those laws hardly ever affected anyone they knew. Certainly not the people who mattered most of all, the country's favorite celebrities and sports teams, who occupy, who so occupied the people's attention. And how bad could it be if it had not yet been the subject of a movie of the week, telling them what to think and how to feel about it. In that wide open land, the police often established roadblocks to check that the people's papers were in order. The police, armed agents of the rulers, used these occasions to ask the occupants whether they were carrying weapons or drugs. Sometimes the police would ask to search the vehicles, and the occupants, not knowing whether they could say no and wanting to prove they were good guys by cooperating, would permit it. The Majestic Court had pronounced these roadblocks and searches lawful on the novel theory unknown to the country's founding forebears that so long as the police were doing this to everyone equally, it didn't violate anyone's rights in particular. Now, these roadblocks sometimes caused annoying delays, but these lovers of the open road took it in stride. After all, they retained their right to keep and bear arms just in case their government someday engaged in unreasonable searches and seizures. In that bustling land, the choice of how to develop property was heavily regulated by local governments that often demanded fees or concessions for the privilege. That is, when the development was not prohibited outright by national moist land regulations that had no foundation in statutory or constitutional law. Even homeowners often required permission to simply build an addition to their homes or to erect a tool shed on their so-called private property. And so it seemed that private property became not a system protecting individual liberty, but a system which, while providing the illusion of ownership, actually just allocated and assigned government-regulated burdens and responsibilities. Still, this mighty productive people believed themselves to live in the most capitalistic society on earth, a society dedicated to the protection of private property. And so they retained the right to keep and bear arms just in case their government ever sought to deprive them of their property without just compensation. Besides, the people had little cause for alarm. Far from worrying about the government control of their property, the more immediate problem was what to buy next. The people were a simple lot, politically speaking, and readily mistook the ability to to acquire an endless assortment of consumer goods as the essence of personal freedom. The enlightened rulers of this great land did not seek to deprive the people of their right to bear arms. Unlike tyrants of the past, they had learned that it was not necessary to disarm the masses. The people proved time and time again that they were willing accomplices to the ever-expanding authority of the government enslaved by their own desire for safety, security, and welfare. The people could have their guns. What did the rulers care? They already possessed the complete obedience they required. In fact, in their more Machiavellian moments, the rulers could be heard to admit that permitting the people the right to keep and bear arms was a marvelous tool of social control. For it provided the people with the illusion of freedom. The people among the most highly regulated on earth, told themselves that they were free because they retained the means of revolt just in case things got really bad. No one, however, seemed to have too clear an idea of what really bad really meant. The people accepted the fact that their government no longer even remotely resembled the plan set forth in their original constitution, and the people's values no longer remotely resembled those of their founding fathers. The people in their naivete really believed that the means of revolt were to be found in a piece of inanimate metal. Really, it was laughable and pathetic. No, the rulers knew that the people could safely be trusted with arms. The government educated their children, provided for their retirement and old age, bequeathed assistance if they lost their jobs, mandated they receive health care, and even doled out food and shelter if they were poor. The government was the very air the the people breathed from childhood to the grave. Few could imagine, let alone desire, any other kind of world. To the extent that the people paid any attention to their system of government, the great mass spent their days simply clamoring for more or better programs, more rational regulations, in short, more of the same. The only thing that really upset them was waste, fraud, or abuse of the exi- abuse of the existing programs. Such shenanigans brought forth vehement protests, demanding that government provide their services more efficiently. Damn it The nation's stirring national anthem, adopted long ago by men who fought for their liberty, ended by posing a question in hopes of keeping the spirit of liberty alive. Did the flag still fly? It asked over the land of the free. Unfortunately, few considered that the answer to that question might really be no, for they had long since lost an understanding of what freedom really is. No, in this land, freedom had become something dark, frightening, and dangerous. The people lived in mortal terror that somewhere, sometime, some individual might make a decision or embark upon a course of action that was not first approved by some government official. Security was far more preferable. How could anyone be truly free if he were not first safe and protected? Now, Jeff Snyder says, now we must say goodbye to this fair country whose government toiled tirelessly to create the safety, fairness, and luxury that all demanded, and that everyone knew could be created by passing just the right laws. Through it all, the people vigorously safeguarded their tradition of firearms ownership. But he says they never knew and never learned that preserving a tradition and a way of life is not the same as preserving liberty. And they never knew and never learned that it's not about guns. Okay, I'll have this in the show notes. This is again from Jeff Snyder, Walter Mitty's Second Amendment. Does it sting you the way that it stung me? I mean, that's a a pretty good smack across the face of reality. But I think everything he wrote there has a ring of truth to it. Okay, check out the show notes. Subscribe to the podcast if you so choose. Consider becoming a regular donor. Five bucks a month, ten bucks a month. Every bit of it helps and is deeply and dearly appreciated. And thanks again for being one of my
0: fellow wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.